Well, you can join me by turning to the book of Ephesians, and I guess you all have that in the Scripture Journal, so you can open up to the first page there. Well, I'm excited to begin this uh, new series together. This is an incredible book. It's not very long, uh, but it can change your life. One of the early church leaders, Jerome, said that Ephesians is in the midst of the Bible like the heart is in the midst of the body. A great pastor of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that if Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, then Ephesians is the most majestic expression of it. Ephesians is concise, and yet it's comprehensive. It's the kind of book that is easy to engage if you're a newer believer or if you're new to even just exploring who Jesus is, and yet it's deep enough for Bible scholars to... Uh, merely scratch the surface throughout their whole life of studying. So this morning is an introduction to the book, so I want us to think about why this book is worth engaging, and then we'll just consider the greeting in the first couple verses of chapter 1. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are gathered to hear Your Word. And so, as we've just prayed in the song, we want to continue to pray here that You would show us Christ, that You would reveal Your glory in Christ, and that You would do this by the power of Your Holy Spirit, working in ways that we cannot see, but we can sense are working deep within us. We pray that You would use the book of Ephesians and this morning considering it to transform our lives, to help us see you more clearly and life and the purpose of life more clearly. We pray that you would use this morning and our time in this book in these coming days and weeks and several months to transform us, to cultivate a culture in our church that reflects your beauty in Jesus, that we would live as this new humanity that you're creating us to be, in that our lives would together would serve this great purpose of uniting all things in heaven and on earth in and under Jesus. So we trust that you are working this morning as part of all things according to the counsel of your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first I want to make several comments on the book of Ephesians as a whole and why we're studying it together, and then we'll consider that greeting. So why immerse ourselves in this book. First, I think I have about five uh, reasons. So one, Ephesians shows us that the gospel is deeper than we know. Um, It's not just deeper than we think we know, it's deeper than we already know, it's deeper than we will ever know in this life. It's like the ocean floor, which has parts that have yet to be explored. It's like outer space that has places that we have no idea um, what they're like out there, and and so exploring it is to learn new things and to be in awe. So Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to explore the ocean depths of the gospel. He wrote it to give us a Hubble telescope-like glimpse of the greatness of who God is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the gospel message, the story that He has… threaded through history to display His glory. The gospel is a message that can be summarized in just a statement or two. 
It's the message that Jesus died for sinners, He rose as King, and He's coming back to restore all things that we might live with Him and His people forever in a new creation. The gospel tells us that we're more sinful than we could even know, but in Christ we're more loved and welcomed than we could ever hope. So that's a concise message. But there are infinite depths to us, and Ephesians explores and helps us explore some of those infinite depths. So from the very beginning, we learn that when we think about the gospel, when we think about God's purposes for us in Christ, we need to prepare to have our minds stretched. So this letter, this letter begins with an incredible, uh, expansive vision of God and the gospel. If you look even just at verse 4 at the beginning, we find out that this is a plan that stretches back before the foundation of the world when God planned salvation and chose those people for salvation. And then it stretches to eternity future in Ephesians 2.7, where in the coming ages we are going to be shown the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So, eternity past to eternity future, it encompasses all of heavens and all of earth. God's plan is for all things in heaven and earth to be united in and under Jesus Christ. Paul says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. So sometimes we can get the thought, I understand Jesus pretty well. I don't think there's much else to see here. I've read the Bible through a couple times. I've read books about Jesus. I went to, I took classes on who Jesus is and New Testament letters perhaps. We can think, I kind of get this. I've thought that often, come to seasons in life where I feel like, okay, I mean, I, I know there's more, but I basically understand what's going on here. But Paul calls the gospel in chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the gospel is not just Jesus, but the riches of Jesus, and not just the riches of Jesus, but the unsearchable riches of Jesus. It is a treasure chest without bottom. It's a credit card without limit. He says that the gospel shows us the glory of God's grace and the depth of God's love. And Paul is convinced that we can't even, this is amazing, we cannot even understand and grasp truly just how deep God's love is without the help of the Holy Spirit empowering us to do so. Just look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 briefly. So Paul's praying for this church, and he prays in the middle of this letter. It's like he's been talking about the beauty of the gospel, the depth of God's love, the glory of His grace, and then he stops in the middle of the letter to pray for them. And here's what he prays, that we may have strength to comprehend. I mean, just stop right there. We need spiritual strength that we do not have on our own and we cannot create on our own. We need spiritual strength in order to comprehend, and he goes on, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we need the Spirit as a church, Zionsville Fellowship, every one of us in 2019, we need the Holy Spirit in this very moment For this sermon to do any good, for your reading and your immersion in Ephesians to do any good in these coming weeks, you need the Holy Spirit to strengthen you with power that you might comprehend God's love, that which we often think we basically get. 
And notice he says, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we need strength to comprehend that which is comprehensible. There's something deeply experiential to all of this as well, isn't there? So that's the first reason. There are infinite depths to the riches of who God is and His grace to us in the gospel. And we see that here in Ephesians. Second, Ephesians isn't just written to show the depth of the gospel, but to invite us to celebrate it, to enjoy God, to know Him, not just know about Him, but to know Him and to enjoy Him. Ephesians basically has two, two parts, two halves. The first three chapters are a celebration of the gospel and God. The second half of the chapters, chapters four to six, express all the implications of that through all of life. So let's consider this first half here. Paul is effusive in his language. It's a sustained celebration. You can tell his whole mind and heart is wrapped up in this. So here's a few ways to see this. We see him get carried away even as he starts writing. So just glance at chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. That takes up a lot of space. In your English translation, you probably have a few periods put in there. It looks like a few sentences. But in Greek, the language in which Paul wrote, it's all one long winding sentence. Once Paul starts about starts talking about God and His grace in verse 3. That's when he kind of starts in after the greeting. The moment he starts, he doesn't take a breath until verse 14. He doesn't have a complete sentence until he gets to the end of verse 14 here. He's getting carried away. Look at his language here. It's effusive in verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom. Not just grace, but the riches of His grace. He didn't just give it, He lavished it. It's not just His wisdom, it's He did it with all wisdom. And right after this section, right after verse 14, this first sentence here, He starts talking about how He prays for these Ephesian believers. And He seems like from this point, in chapter 1, verse 15, all the way to the end of chapter 3, he's actually been trying to finish his prayer. Just follow this with me here. He starts in verse 115, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he starts talking about what he prays for them. But he never actually seems to wrap up that prayer. He starts reflecting on how Jesus died and he rose with power. And how that power is in us who were dead in our sins. And he ro rose us from the dead and raised us from the dead. And then he unites us together. And he keeps going into chapter 2. And then look at the beginning of chapter 3. It looks like he's going to finally get back to his prayer. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Do you see a little dash? It's because he doesn't actually get to what, he, the, what he's going to do there. For this reason, I, and then he spends uh, several other sentences just effusively talking about God's grace and the unsearchable treasures of, of the riches of his gospel in Christ. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 14, and he finally gets to this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he starts praying for them. And then he starts praising God directly 
after that prayer, right in the middle of this letter, at the end of chapter 3, right as he's wrapping up this effusive celebration of the gospel in the first half of this letter, right after he prays for them, he gives a doxology. Look at Ephesians 3.21. To whom be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Middle of the letter, just praising God. What does this show us? Theology is never meant to be stiff or stale. And we can never divorce theology from practice in the mind and the heart. Ephesians blows out of the water every inadequate view of real spirituality that we have. Um, it blows out of the water our, some of our tendencies to be all about the mind and all learning theology, and then we can close that book and go on as if it didn't change anything in our hearts or lives. It also blows out of the water the idea that I don't like thinking, I just like reading uh, devotional things or things that aren't really theological. Uh, blows out of the water the idea like I'm just a doer. You know, don't give me the theology stuff, let's just get stuff done as if there's some kind of dichotomy between the two. It just blows this out of the water. And it shows us that real theology is thick and it's deep and it's powerful. And it should be leading to praise. We should be singing our theology. And we should be moved to prayer as we read the Bible and read good biblically saturated books about the Bible. So it's this full um, expression of grace. And we shouldn't be surprised. God made us not just brains on sticks nor did He make us merely feeling things, nor did He merely make us mechanical machines. We, we think, we feel, we have affections, and we do. We're, we're human beings, the fullness of human beings, and His grace is for the fullness of who we are. And so, we're meant to feel that, experience that. If that feels foreign to you, that's why we're immersing ourselves in Ephesians. Uh, we, we're all imbalanced, right? We all have tendencies to magnify one part of this or the other. And Ephesians helps us bring it together. And it's not wrong to lean in to one of these um, aspects of the Christian life in different seasons or with different personalities, but the point is we don't make any false dichotomies between them. We bring this together. So, celebration of the gospel. Here's a third reason why we're in Ephesians. It teaches us how the gospel doesn't just change our hearts and lead to the celebration, it actually changes all of life. The gospel is for all of life. And it can transform every aspect of life. So, the first three chapters are sheer gospel theology. There's only one command in the first three chapters, and it's the command to remember. Then beginning in chapter 4, it's filled with commands because this second half of the book shows us that this great gospel applies to every aspect of life. Those last three chapters are filled with practical topics. And so, if you are someone who tends to like to rest in the chapters one through three and celebrate God's grace and think with deep theology and, and feel the experience of God's grace in the Spirit, then chapters four, for six, four through six are there for you to press into to see the implications for every aspect of life. Um, so, here's a few examples. We learn about how church leaders exist to equip the members of a church for ministry to one another. We learn how to deal with anger and bitterness and an unforgiving spirit and laziness. This addresses relational challenges. Uh, it addresses our sexuality. It addresses the danger of living with greed. It talks about how Christians are to live in the midst of their culture. 
It shows us how to have healthy marriages, addressing the proper roles of a husband and a wife. It addresses the broader family life with parents and children. It addresses the impact of our faith in Jesus on work. It speaks to the topic of spiritual warfare, something that's largely neglected in the West, but in many places of the world, they are very aware of it. Elsewhere, he teaches in this letter how to pray. He teaches us how to be humble. He teaches us how to deal with racism in the church, how to pursue ethnic harmony as Christians. So this is an incredibly practical book. And with each of these topics, he's not just giving general wisdom. There's an order to things, right? First three chapters are the foundation and the motivation for living this practical life in the rest of the book. So we should never divorce the two halves of this book. So this book corrects then uh, a compartmentalized vision of the Christian life, as if we can come here on Sundays and be Christians, and then it has no impact around the lunch table afterwards, or the dinner table, or classroom, or in our workplace, uh, or in our neighborhoods, or how we treat one another. Every moment of every day matters, and the gospel has an impact on. Fourth reason, Ephesians gives us an incredible vision of the importance of the local church. Paul is writing this letter to churches here. Christians in the first century wouldn't have had a concept of individualistic Christianity. When people became Christians, they were baptized into a community life. So Paul's writing to these Christians to tell them that being part of a church is more significant than they may have thought. So look at chapter 3, verse 10. He says that God's plan was not just to save individual Christians, but to do something in addition to that, to bring them together into churches. And he says that he himself is giving his life for this reason. Here it is. So that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this is God's purpose for you. This is God's purpose for us as a local church, for God's manifold wisdom to be put on display. So the church is a new humanity. God's forming us to live in the way that we were always meant to be and to do that together. And he's doing that to put God's wisdom in doing this on display, and on display not just for the world, but did you see where? To the heavenly places, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the spiritual realm that is now off kilter, the demonic realm, is supposed to look at what God's up to in the world and see local churches and see how we're transformed and see how this culture impacts the way we treat one another, and they're supposed to say, God is a lot smarter than we thought. They're supposed to see His manifold wisdom. They're supposed to see that their time is running short, that God's power is at work over the hearts that they thought they could influence. And then chapter 4 shows us what it looks like to live together as a church. Every member is important. Every member has a gift. Every member has a role in serving one another. And finally, this book shows us how to grow by grace. So this corrects a moralistic view of the Christian life too. Here's how we see this. The structure of the book, once again, moves from who we are in Christ, our new identity, and only from there moving on to how we live in light of who we are in Christ. So we start with the joy of knowing God, and then that motivates how we live in all of life. 
Gospel doctrine empowers gospel living. The first half is what God has done for us in Christ. The second half is how the Spirit changes us to become like Christ. So, in other words, we can never reverse the order and merely pluck out a command from the Bible and just say, do it, or just speak to our own self and say, I just need to do it, Um, because that's not Christian. It's not real Christianity. Real Christianity has real commands that are always given in the context of grace. Um, And so we always need to have that in mind. Okay, so that's why a few reasons, a glimpse of why to be in this book together. So let's just look at this greeting uh, by way of further introduction, the first two verses. So this greeting introduces us to the man who wrote the letter and the people who are reading it. So one of the reasons why this greeting is so important is because it immediately grounds this letter in real space and time history. This was written by a real person to real people in the midst of a real culture with real challenges in a real city. So God doesn't remove us from the world. He speaks to us and transforms us in the midst of the world. So let's walk through this greeting one phrase at a time. So first, here's the author, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I wonder if Paul himself was a bit surprised every time he got to say that or write those words. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That was not his original life plan. He wasn't applying for this role. He wasn't working toward this role. He spent much of his life training as an intellectual leader and a Jewish religious leader. He was incredibly well educated, and he lived in the midst of an incredibly turbulent time because Jesus showed up and a new movement was started, and everything was changing. So Jesus rose from the dead. His disciples start spreading this incredible message all over Jerusalem and the surrounding regions, and the Jewish leaders were furious, and so Paul was part of that furious reaction, and so Paul was giving his life to arresting Christians, dragging them back to Jerusalem, trying to get them executed for following Jesus. He wanted this whole thing snuffed out altogether, and then the risen Jesus himself confronted Paul. And Paul had an undeniable encounter with him, and that meant he found that his whole life was heading the wrong direction. His whole life was set against the true God, and so he was transformed. God gave him a new heart, and then Jesus commissioned him to be his apostle. And so in chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, Paul talks about this. You can read it with me. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister or a servant according to the gift of God's grace, right? Not according to my resume being accepted by God. No, the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He calls himself the least of all the saints to make a point. Um, I don't think what Paul means when he says this a few times in his letters, that this is kind of the language we, we all can use, kind of like anyone can say, yeah, I'm the worst. I think Paul really believed it, right? He was persecuting Christians. He was a leader against Jesus and Christians. He was giving his life to see Christians arrested and beaten and potentially executed, and God rescued him out of nowhere. And so he's saying, listen, I'm the least. I am the worst And the point is, if God will save me, anybody can get in on this. This gospel is for anyone, uh, no matter how much they've done against 
God. And he's, so he's just thrilled. He's like, and me, the worst, the least, I get to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, which means he's an ambassador. He's bringing the message of Jesus to people. So that's what we have in this letter. We have Paul, who is conquered by Christ's grace and given this commission to spread his message. And now we're receiving this message in the letter of Ephesians. And Paul says a couple of times that he's in prison. He's been imprisoned a few different times. The most likely situation is that Paul is in Rome at this time that he's writing um, in the early 60s A.D., so he's under house arrest. He has a soldier guarding him, but he can still write letters. People can come and go and visit him. So he's writing this letter to the Ephesian churches. Second line of the greeting tells us who received this letter. Second half of verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean that he says he's writing to the saints? Is this to the super-Christians? That's often how we use that word. The word means holy one, refers to God's set-apart people, and it doesn't refer to the super-religious people. It's not like there are Christians and then there are saints. Um, That's not what the word means here. It's referring to all Christians. All Christians are called saints. Just like Paul the least can be an apostle, any Christian, even the least, is a saint. If you're trusting Christ for your salvation, you are a saint. You are set apart to be devoted to God. You have this privileged position of being His people in the midst of this world. So, you know, picture a tree, big tree filled with leaves. Every leaf represent, represents a different Christian alive on the planet in the world today. Some leaf is at the top. I mean, there's, there's some Christian who is alive somewhere on the planet who is the closest to God and is the most like Jesus, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. There's also somebody who's kind of on that branch that's kind of like bending toward the bottom and it's like almost touching the ground and it's kind of dangly and you're not even sure if it's really got much life in it, but it's still connected. There's a little bit of green there. There's a Christian somewhere who's that. And Paul says they're all saints. They're all equally saints. They're all in. I think this was like the 50th anniversary. I can't remember exactly. I remember reading a headline yesterday before about uh, Charles Manson and that terrible stuff that happened in California um, in the late 60s and uh, how several people who were part of that Manson family committed murders and atrocities have become Christians since then. So I remember thinking about that as I was thinking about Ephesians and uh, it's an amazing thought because when people commit those kinds of crimes, we're rightfully angered we want justice. Those are good. But we also have a thought that we want to completely write them off altogether. And God looks at those people, and here they are in prison, and God said, I'm going to save a few of them. I want to make them saints. I'm going to put them on my tree. I'm going to treasure them and love them and transform them. One of them's like a pastor, um, I think, kind of preaching, or and I made an official pastor, but he's kind of preaching the gospel in prison. I mean, just a crazy story. So I, I haven't checked on those, know the details, but that kind of thing happens, right? Where people that, that are viewed as the dregs of society, God ends up moving in on and shedding his love in their heart. He loves to do that, which means any of us can get in on it because the whole point is grace. So this book then is not for super Christians. It's for real Christians who live real life with real sin and have real struggles. 
Then Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus. So this is a letter to Christians living in this city of Ephesus, which was a difficult cultural situation. This was not a Christianized city by any measure at that time. It was not a friendly place for Christians to live. The cities of the first century Greco-Roman world were more like our world than not. The Christians then lived in this large city, probably over 200,000 people, one of the largest cities in the world at the time. It was a very affluent place because it was a port city, a lot of trade, a lot of uh, cultural development there, a lot of people coming and going. It was the home of a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, and that temple became known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And the book of Acts tells us how the church got started in this city. So Paul came through it on one of his missionary journeys, and he stopped there and stayed for over two years, speaking to people in the city about the gospel every day, it says, for those two years. And by the time he was done, it says everyone in Ephesus and that surrounding area had heard the message. Everybody had heard it by the time he was through there. And as people started following Jesus, it started changing the culture. It was actually a disturbance at first because the gospel often does that. The more we take Christ seriously, the more it changes how we live, and that's going to have an impact on the kinds of things we produce in the culture, the kinds of things we like in the culture. So, One of the big changes that happened for the Christians in Ephesus is that they stopped buying these little silver figurines of the temple to Artemis, and they stopped buying these silver idols. And if you get enough people becoming Christians and enough people taking Jesus seriously, then they stop doing that. And then what happens to the silver makers who are making a living off of this stuff? They get a little mad. So a guy named Demetrius in particular started to leave this mob riot against Paul and these Christians because the Christians were no longer buying these silver idols and he was losing money. It's often how cultural change works. What, happens, what would happen if every Christian decided they would not watch any show or any movie that included sexually explicit material. And what happens when we say we're not watching it? That would have an impact in the entertainment industry. So that kind of thing happened in Ephesus. So Acts 19 tells the story of this man named Demetrius, had this huge stir. So Paul leaves the city, but the church was planted. They didn't meet in a building, but they met in homes around the city. And then several years later, Paul's writing this letter to them. And he calls them saints in Ephesus. And it's the same way today. We are saints in Zionsville. We're saints in Whitestown. We're saints in the Indianapolis area. Both. We're set apart by God, devoted to Him, saints, but we're still in the midst of the culture we find ourselves in. And so this book is for people like us because it was for people like them. They're more like us than not. So if you have been disillusioned by Christianity in America, uh, this book is here to give you a fresh vision of what it was always meant to be. If you've asked the question, what is real Christianity supposed to look and feel like? This book is for you to show you that. If you're not yet following Jesus and you wonder, what is it really supposed to look like? I've seen so many different kinds of churches. I've seen so many ugly glimpses of religious people that call themselves Christians. What is it supposed to be? Who's the real Jesus? This book is for you. I hope you join us for the rest of this study. Let's look at the last line of the greeting. It shows us what we can expect from this letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we as Christians need to learn 
to step into every day hearing that. With all our failures from the previous day, we confess them to the Lord. He forgives them in Christ, and then we roll out of bed, and we hear grace to you and peace from God your Father and the Lord, the King, Jesus Christ. This is what God brings to us. This is how Paul begins his letters. This is how he begins this one. And those two words, grace and peace, are saturated throughout this letter. Grace is God's kindness that we don't deserve. We deserve the opposite. And peace is the result. It's what, where God is moving all of history to a world of peace, shalom, flourishing, a new creation to come, and that the realities of that new creation to come have broken into the present age by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Peace. We don't deserve it uh, because of our sin. We deserve n- to not hear grace to you. We deserve to hear something more like condemnation to you. Uh, but we hear grace. Not peace, but punishment to you. But Jesus has taken our punishment so we can hear this every day afresh. And God's called our Father here. Paul wants us to see from the outset that this message comes from God's fatherly heart. If you are in Christ, He has adopted you into His family as a beloved son or daughter. And God is now your Father. He loves you with fatherly affection. If you had a bad father, God is the opposite of that. If you had a great father, God is the epitome of that. God is the truest Father. And Jesus is called the Lord here, a royal title. He's the king. He's the ruler. So the point of this book is that when we see who God really is, Father, Son, and Spirit, and what He's done for us through this gospel message, this rescuing grace, then it changes everything. Every moment of every day. And it begins to change the culture around us. So here's what I hope happens to us. First, that we would see and enjoy this triune God as we immerse ourselves in this letter, that we would see Him more clearly, that this book would help us to maybe click over a bit from black and white to radiant color in the screen of our minds as we think about God and His salvation. Second, that we would be transformed, that we would see and understand how the gospel connects to all of life, how His grace empowers a life of forgiveness how, the, how faith in Christ connects to our schooling and our workplace, how it impacts every moment of everyday life, that we live differently in light of the fact that Jesus is the risen King and we're united to Him and we're seated with Him, as Ephesians says, in the heavenly places, ruling and reigning at His side already. So the prayer is that we'd be transformed. And then finally, that this would happen as we immerse ourselves in this book. So I encourage you, to use that Ephesians Scripture journal, or at least use your Bible alongside and immerse yourself in the book of Ephesians. So just a reminder of those ways, consider doing um, a daily read-through, read through the whole book every day for a month, um, or read through a chapter every day for the series. Pick Mondays for chapter one, Tuesdays for chapter two, and so forth. Um, I encourage you to slow down and study it, You can see the text coming for the sermons every Sunday. Spend the week ahead of time studying that. Um, Partner to remember, after I already shared that earlier this morning about memorizing the book together, someone came up and said that just yesterday they were thinking, you know, I'd like to memorize the book of Ephesians. Someone else told me that he and his wife have already done that together. So 
Many of you are already doing it, and so I encourage you to find someone and continue to work on that and memorize it together. And then finally, redeem the time. Take that little journal with you, study it, read it as you're waiting for an appointment or there's downtime or you know, read it instead of watching another show or spending more time on social media. So um, we're going to sing a song, and before we sing, uh, let's pray in light of Ephesians chapter 3, because in order for any of those hopes to happen, uh, we have to be strengthened with power. So we'll pray and then we'll sing together. And this prayer begins, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. If you'd like to get on your knees right now, go for it. Um, you don't have to, but there's space in these pews. They're the roomiest pews I've seen in my life, so there's room to do that if you'd like to. Uh, feel free. Father, for this reason, because of your grace, we bow before you in our hearts, on our knees, because we're dependent on you. We are also hopeful and eager to see what you will do through us as we spend time hearing your voice in the book of Ephesians. We thank you for this great book. We pray that you would do for us what you've done to thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of others through this book, through the past 2,000 years. So we pray that you would, according to the riches of your glory, grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and breadth and length of your love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And please, Father, fill us with all of your fullness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.